We start, though, on with an update on a story from a couple of years ago that absolutely shocked people throughout the province. And yesterday we learned that a charge of manslaughter has been laid in the case in the 2019 death of Carson Kremeni. And his dad, Aaron Kremeni, is with us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Aaron, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Oh, thank you. What was your response when, after all this time, you got word that a charge of manslaughter had been laid? Um, yeah, we just heard yesterday. Um, of course, it was, of course, emotional and then, I guess, relief. It's been a long wait for this. Um, there have been times that we've wondered if it was going to happen or not. So, yeah, it was, uh, I would say, relief would be the best word to describe it. I remember talking to you, it would have been probably at least a year and a half ago, possibly even longer than that, and talking to you about suspects in this case and about if you knew anything, if you were being kept in the loop. And I know at that time, you knew that there were people that that police were looking at, that police thought could potentially face charges in this case. What are your thoughts on, on the fact that it took so long to get to this point? Yeah, it, it was it was a long process. Um, we have been talking with police like periodically throughout the last two years. Um, uh, apparently, it was a yeah, it was a it was a long haul to get to where we're at. Um, they kept reassuring us that they were moving forward, so we continued to take them at their word on that. And yeah, I mean, it was a long process, but it, but charges have finally been pressed, so we're happy about that. What about the fact that it's a, it's a charge of manslaughter? Um, for me personally, I think that's light. Uh, manslaughter sort of suggests accidental. I personally don't believe, um, and from what I've heard, that this was accidental, but um, I understand that um, they have to charge them with what they can. When we go back to what happened to your son, the the circumstances around Carson's death, and I think people listening to this will remember mm-hmm. even seeing the video. It was incredibly disturbing for anybody to watch. I can't imagine what it was like for you to watch that video. Uh, the fact that people saw what was happening to him, a call was made, uh, help was dispatched, but didn't get there in time to help him that night. Do you think things have changed or that people have learned from Carson's death or or that there is some positive outcome from this? I hope it helps some some kids in the future somehow, some way. Um, I definitely think these charges is a big step in that process. I think um, uh, just letting people know it's unacceptable to intentionally overdose somebody, especially a child, um, that it won't it won't be accepted. You won't get just quote unquote get away with it. Um, uh, so I think these charges are a big part in moving forward and sending a message to the kids out there and hopefully preventing this from happening again. Uh, police investigators in releasing the information yesterday that the charge of manslaughter has been laid also said that they interviewed more than 100 witnesses and that they received more than 100 tips uh, in this case and that that is what helped them culminate this putting forward the information to crown to get this charge laid what does that that mean for you that there were more than 100 people who did come forward and did offer up information to police yeah well i mean that's 
very appreciated, appreciated, of course. And I mean, it's nice to see that people do have a conscience and, you know, conscience that leads them to do the right thing at times. I mean, on that day, there was a lot more that I think could have been done, but, um, you know, it is nice to see that people are stepping up and doing what's right. When you when you think about Carson, and uh, I remember again talking to you about this, and and what an amazing person he was, and and that day that he went out uh, like like any day, he was going out to meet up with friends and and doing what any fourteen year old would do. When you think about Carson, what kind of memories kind of help you through? Well, I mean, he was he was he was a great kid. I mean, like I've said it a million times, all he ever wanted to do was make people happy. He loved to make people laugh. He was always you know, cracking jokes, and um, he just wanted, you know, he wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be, you know, he had had sometimes hard times making friends. He wanted to be accepted. I think, you know, these these boys or this boy at least uh, convinced him he was his friend falsely. And, you know, my, my son was unaware of it. We can't say much about the person who has been charged at this point and police saying uh, that because of the age of the accused in 2019, we can't uh, talk about his name. We can't identify him. There's a publication ban on that. Uh, He is not being held in custody. He's been released on custody and will be back in court on October 20th. Will you be in court that day as well to see what, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be there for sure. Um, yeah, I, I believe it'll be in a court case. I'm not sure if they're going to do it. Um, I've heard I've heard that they're doing some things over uh, over the internet nowadays, but I I'm not sure about that. But if if it's in court, I'll 100 percent be there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything's a little different because of of COVID rules and restrictions yeah. and such. Um, I'm not asking you to identify the the person. In fact, please don't because there is the publication nope. ban. But can I ask you? Do you know who this person is? We have a pretty good idea. Will it be difficult, though, if you are in court, even if it's a video link or a picture or the, or this person is there either in person or on a video screen? How difficult? How do you prepare to, to go and do that? Um, I, there's not really much preparation. Um, you just pretty much go and just do it. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm happy that he's being charged, so I'll be there, you know with the hopes of the charges going through. And, um, yeah, you, you don't really prepare for it. You just, you just go and do it because it needs to be done. Hmm. Are you hopeful or, or in any way confident that there could poten- could possibly be more charges laid in this case? I'm, at the moment, I'm unsure. Um, I don't believe there are, or at least not that I've been informed in any way. So uh, hopeful is a, a tough word, but... Um, we're happy at least that the individual that gave him the, the narcotics and the drugs are uh, is being charged finally. All right, uh, Aaron, we'll leave it there uh, for that for the, at that point today. But thanks so much. I know this is extremely difficult and brings up very uh, very uh, awful memories. But thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. We're going to talk a little bit more about something we discussed on the show yesterday that was deploying officers more on foot and on bike to some of the hardest hit areas of downtown Vancouver, areas where we're seeing 
windows smashed, graffiti, vandalism, and whether or not that will make a difference. But we're also going to talk about what we saw unfold at the Fairmont Pacific Rim Hotel in downtown Vancouver, a shooting in a parking lot. Let's bring on Doug Spencer. He is a gang expert retired from the Vancouver Police Department. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Jill. I want to start by talking about what we know so far about the shooting that took place in the hotel parking lot at the Fairmont. We know the victim now has been identified as 35-year-old Amandeep Manch. We know that he has a history. He certainly has. He was known to police. He has a history that shows gang activity, even though police now aren't saying 100% that this shooting was connected to ongoing gang activity. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, it'd be a really good guess, chilled <laughs> with Amadeep that it was connected in some way to the gangs and drugs and stuff. Um, he's a kid, him and his brother. His brother got murdered in 2018 in Mexico. Uh, I knew both of them really well. Uh, they kind of came to fruition during... In fact, the Bindi Johal days, back then they were little drug runners for Bindi and Ranch Chima and those guys who have also all died. Um, yeah, he's a kid that was involved in it and made bad choices and it's caught up to him. Wow, that's going back quite a few years. Oh, it is. Yeah, he was just a 17, 18-year-old kid making dumb decisions. So when you heard that name and and saw how this went down, a shooting in what appears to be that parking lot, he was found deceased in that vehicle. What what went through your mind? Uh, Remembering back to the conversations I had with him and his brother, trying to pretty much talk them out of their decisions, right? You're trying to influence these young kids to stay away from that because they're completely naive to where it leads, right, the dead-end road thing. So um, I'm actually shocked it's taken this long because he's been involved in that stuff. Um, You know, it's another example of wasted potential. He was a nice enough kid and pretty bright, but uh, he kind of hung out and got involved with the wrong peer group. And even looking back, like you said, to the, those earlier days when he was a teenager, uh, I, I think if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, or, or I read as well, that he was part of a VPD investigation. He was arrested back in 2009. It must, as somebody who worked in, in the gang department as, a, as an investigator, uh, you must wonder too, had he changed his life around in 2009 or, or seen where things were going, how different things could be? Oh, no, for sure, Jill. Kids like that, when they go to jail, you, you hope that's enough to kind of wake them up, but they need support after they get out of jail. They need employment. They need uh, mentors, role models, right? And, uh, Amandeep had real no, his role model was his brother. And Ranch Chima and Bindi, those are the bad, the wrong role models, right? They're, they're just going to use you and throw you away. So, um, yeah, you need support. Just like a drug addict needs mental health assistance and support and stuff to deal with their, their issue, so do gang members. They need support to get away from that stuff. Uh, are you surprised then, and I think you kind of touched on this, that he actually did live to be 35? Well, that's an old man, I'll tell you. In that game, if you live into your 30s, you're a miracle. 
especially today, it's just a complete slaughterhouse. They're shooting one another over like nothing. Uh, are, should people be concerned then, do you think, in this case as well, about retaliation? Oh, there'll certainly be retaliation. They have to retaliate his associates or they'll just get pushed right off the map, right? They have to step up to the plate and not get pushed around in their minds, right? But, uh, yeah, the the problem is that these guys, when they go looking for one another, they don't know where they're going to find their enemy. So if they find them in the lineup at McDonald's or uh, wherever, they're going to go get them. They don't care about who's in the way, right? You, you saw the shooting up in Kelowna there. They just blasted away with a, a young mother pushing her little baby right beside the car. They don't care, right? They have no morals, these guys. So in a case like this, would this have been a hit that was organized enough that they knew he was going to be in the parking garage and they wanted to shoot him in the parking garage or more of an opportunity? He happened to be there and he was spotted. Well, it's probably spotted and an opportunity, but, you know, these guys, they're, they're little killers. They know having somebody down in an underground parking lot, they're contained. Just like police try and take down bad guys when they're contained in vehicles or in areas where there's no uh, public walking around, right? It's your best chance of getting them. So, yeah, they probably knew he was there and they just waited until they got him in an area where... He was accessible and couldn't get away. And when you look at this story, like you've you've said, this is kind of the classic story with perhaps the difference being that he managed to elude death to the age of 35. If somebody can't be convinced that this isn't a good lifestyle or or convinced that that your life is going to be very short, you're not going to make it much past or into your 30s if that isn't enough to try and deter somebody how else do you get that message across yeah you you start kind of at a very early age which at our squad we do we go and give talks as early as grade five to kids in community centers and give them a little idea of what they're going to see in high school and further on right and then hopefully that rings in their mind when somebody comes to recruit them and get them to sell drugs and stuff for them, that it it isn't what they're being told and they walk away from it. That's your hope. So, and you've got to get them involved in other stuff like sports or art or whatever the, their niche is. You've got to support them. And, you know, like at odd squad, we do judo with kids. There's a sense of uh, physical activity, physical literacy, they learn something, self-defense, there's a discipline to it, and it gives them the discipline in their life to make good decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think if there was more of that, that more would be able to, to be deterred? Oh, no, for sure. You gotta, a lot of these kids are just bored, right? Their, their parents are out working two or three jobs trying to you know, chase the rainbow as far as money, but they're not keeping an eye on their kids and keeping their kids involved in positive activities. And then the next thing you know, you're at your kid's funeral. That's the way it's happened. I've seen it happen hundreds of times like that, where the parents are good people, but they've just lost track of their kid. We often hear that kids get pulled into this or are intrigued by this as well because it's lucrative. How lucrative is it? Uh, The kids that often... um, 
young age, 17 or 18, they make nothing. They make, you know, a pocket full of $100 bills. The gang they're working for are the one that they reap the rewards, right? They, they tend grow-ups with $200,000 worth of marijuana in there, and they get two dollars $3,000 to take care of it. Like, who's the sucker in that analogy, right? They just don't realize it. They see it as, oh, 2000 bucks. that's a lot of money, but they don't understand that comes with the price. Yeah, well, and uh, definitely, and we're seeing that, uh, the latest example uh, in that shooting at the Fairmont. Uh, Doug, just before I let you go, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask your opinion on this as well. We were talking about this on the show yesterday, Vancouver police saying they're going to put more foot patrols and bicycle patrols in areas like the Granville Mall and the West End to try and deal with the increase in property crime. Do you think that will work? Uh, A thousand percent it'll work. Uh, I'll equate it to a we used to go to work the fireworks every year and there used to be stabbings and, and fights and all sorts of stuff taken on down there. When I was in the gang unit, we would go down and arrest guys, but then the city decided to have call outs and get lots of policemen. So there's basically a policeman in every block or two. And you can see the fireworks. Now there's no trouble because the police are present and the, the bad guys see that they're way less, likely to misbehave right so if all these property crooks and guys downtown see there's policemen in every block they'll slow right down it's a common sense solution right is it a fear though that they'll yeah slow down in those areas but then just move somewhere else well there could be a little bit of transference for sure if they see uh, you know and I'll tell you a good example of that. We used to do the anti-gang uh, bar watch downtown and where there were shootings and stuff in the nightclubs. And we started going in there with the gang unit and stuff. And in a six-month period, there was no shootings in Vancouver, but Langley, Surrey, and Burnaby in these places started getting shootings because we displaced them. So... You know, it's good for Vancouver. It may not be good for outside agencies that aren't doing that, unfortunately. All right. We will leave it there for today. Always great to chat with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Take it is very rainy outside. It is a very typical, I think, Metro Vancouver fall day. So why not talk a little bit more about the weather? And this is a story about a prediction. BC Hydro is warning that there could be a very stormy fall and winter and things could get even worse because of the hot temperatures we saw in the summer. The report from BC Hydro saying that record-breaking heat between June and August in some cases in BC, killed trees or weakened their root systems. And that could lead to unstable trees coming down during those storms. And that could cause more power outages. So we wanted to learn more about what's happening with the trees. How many unstable trees are there out there? Well, Tim Swain joins us now, an arborist with BC Tree Service. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Joe, not a problem. How concerned should we be that all of that drought, that hot weather in the summer has led to trees that perhaps aren't overly stable? Yeah, I think that's always a possibility. We've seen it before in the past here in Vancouver. Um, 
no, the soil gets very dry and, and uh, the structure or the composition, it, it shrinks away a lot. And then now all of a sudden we're getting like super saturation and that's definitely can be, as far as in the, stru- the lower structure of the tree, that can definitely kind of undermine roots and, and, and loosen up soil for trees to potentially fall over. Is it something that a layperson, somebody who's not an arborist, can detect when looking at a tree or are there signs that we should be looking for? Um, I think overall through the summer, I mean, your regular non-tree person will, would still have noticed if they were taking a look or still would notice if they take a look around right now that there's been a lot of tree dieback or or they went into, started to go into dormancy quite early this year because it was just so hot that it didn't get that didn't get the water that was required. So a lot of trees have died. They're looking a little crispy, so to speak. Um, as far as like root systems and things, that can be hard to detect. But if a tree's starting to lean, um, you can um, sometimes you'll see there's like pockets where the soil's kind of depression or lifting up on one side. And those are very serious concerns and you should be should be calling your, your local arborist, your BC Tree Service, if you will, to get in there and, uh, and have a look if you're concerned about your trees. All right, that makes sense. Uh, are certain trees more susceptible to this than others? Um, yes, there's definitely some t- on on the on the root system side. Uh, in an event like this, uh, trees trees that are known for shallow rooting systems, um, such as maples and elms, which we have a lot of here in the city, um, but uh, and cottonwoods even. But you do a lot of it will depend on on where they're you know where they're planted, where they're growing from as well. It might be sitting on a high up on a berm or lower down or you do see like a lot of the um the city street trees around the different municipalities and uh they don't have a lot of room to grow or or their roots have been compromised by the roadways or the sidewalks so those trees don't have a lot of room um so certainly areas they would normally be getting water um through the when it's raining they they wouldn't have been getting any so they've typically got a bit of a compromised root system to begin with Right. I, I mean, I think we've all seen the pictures when the big storms hit. There's that tree, uh, the, exactly how you just described. That's maybe part of the sidewalk or on a boulevard that just topples over onto someone's house. Yeah, they just tip up. I and mean, then when you do see the root plate lifted up out of the ground, you realize there wasn't much holding up that 100 foot tree quite often. Uh, and so going back to the drought, if people, and we're, if, if say we're talking about trees on private property, if people were being really diligent about watering and making sure that they were trying to keep the, the ground saturated even dur- during that heat wave, would that have helped and, and helped yeah, the tree get through? Yeah, 100%. For, especially for the, I mean, older heritage trees, younger trees often adapt, but they will, they still certainly do need a lot of water, especially in those first couple of years. But the older trees... Um, I, I was reading uh, something, you, you can put up to 100 gallons a week on an older tree um, in, in really hot drought conditions. Um, and uh, long, slow, um, deep watering, so the water gets right down into those feeding roots, which are typically in the first um, couple of feet of the soil. And, um, and they, can, they can spread up to three times uh, the diameter of the actual crown of the tree. So... If people are, if you've if you've got a you got a house and and you know it's hot through the summer, maybe if you've got your watering day, you should not be so worried about your lawn looking green, but looking after your trees because your lawn will always bounce back. Right, but I guess the tree doesn't. Yeah, the, and and the trees they they um they take a long time to show. Like this drought could 
still be affecting some trees seriously in three, four, five years from now. You won't, you might not be able to pinpoint it, but um, it's not always instant. So mm. some trees are maybe they were under stress already uh, this year. They've they've kind of this has kind of been the fatal blow for them. But this could be for some other trees. This could be the start of a decline period because you do start to you know, you get die off in the buds and the bark and in the roots. And, and really, for the safety concern, you don't want that die off in the roots because that's going to, um, that, you know, that can really cause cause some big problems. Do those devices work, or I guess not devices, but you often see more so on, on city trees or municipal trees on the boulevard, those green skirts that fill up with water that to kind of hold the gallons of water and then release it slowly. Do those work? Yeah, they're just basically a slow, I mean, uh, they're kind of like having a drip feeding device. They've just got very small, small permeated um, bags, so the water will just slowly come out. The key is, with a lot of those, is making sure they've got water in them. Some people put them on and walk away and think that's it, but um, depending on how quickly they're emptying out, um, it it can be a little bit of a kind of, I forgot to do it. So um, then it's sitting there all summer, but it's got no water in it after a couple of days. So they, they just basically slowly let out water. They're not a bad device. They're really good with, um, with new tree plantings as well. All right. So looking ahead then to the fall and winter, and again, this was a warning from BC Hydro saying that in North America, we have some of the highest densities of trees per kilometer, especially when we're talking about power lines. And that's why yeah, I, I, I saw that. Okay. So, so Hydro saying, brace yourselves that there could be more lines down, more power outages. Uh, is it a, a case of now crews should be going out and figuring out which trees could be most problematic, maybe doing a little bit uh, of mitigation now? Uh, if, if they could, I think that'd be great. I imagine they might tell you they're a little busy for that. But I mean, t- typically, they, from what I understand, they go through on a on a as regular a basis as they can and, and clear back to a certain distance from the lines. And depending on the neighbourhoods, you will see that they have a certain spec they have to work to. And once they get a you know the big tall Douglas fir trees, once they get above that spec, they stop the trimming. So the the limbs still go out above the power lines. Um, and so invariably you will have limbs come down, break and land on the power lines and, and not much could be done unless you're going to, on those types of trees, there's not much you can do unless you're going to go and skin major sections of trees off. Uh, certainly I don't think anyone wants to see Vancouver get uh, denuded of its treescape. Um, otherwise it will have quite a different looking city. So I think it's probably... I don't know if the policy is perfect that they have, but I don't know uh, what they would do to, unless you go around cutting down all the trees near power lines, which I don't think anyone wants to see. No, probably not. Uh, one final question, and you you touched on this. Do you think people who uh, actually have property and have trees on their property, is it something that people pay enough attention to as far as making sure if an arborist is needed, they do call an arborist or making sure that they're keeping up with it and knowing exactly if the trees are healthy or not? Yeah, quite quite often we we deal with people calling us, um, and it's kind of they don't do anything until they realise their trees are a problem. Whether that um, so they're not um, doing regular maintenance or regular inspections and things like that. Like maybe they call us when their tree is touching the roof of the house, and then you have to do some really heavy pruning. Whereas had we been called a few years later, potentially we can do some more sensitive, uh, not such drastic pruning um, to just lighten the load of the tree, get them away from houses, possibly get them away from um, residential power lines and things like that. And, and so 
it's a little bit of being being aware of having, of what's at your, what's on your property and and treating the trees like assets and you know a lot of people didn't like the heat through the summer if we lose all if we lose too many more trees we're going to need you know all the houses heat up and things like that and i think what we're seeing is definitely you know an eye to the people who uh, maybe they don't quite believe in climate change but i think things are definitely getting hotter and we're seeing some pretty extreme weather these days All right. We will leave it there. Tim, thank you so much, though, for joining us and talking more about this. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. Have a nice day. Well, North Shore rescue teams are often very busy. They get called out when there are people missing, hikers that have perhaps gone off the trail. They have gone to an area they're not familiar with. Maybe the hike is more grueling than they anticipated. They also get called to serious medical cases as well. And it looks as though records are being broken when it comes to the number of calls. So let's check in with Mike Danks, who is a team leader with North Shore Rescue and talk a little bit about how the summer looked and what they are looking at come fall and winter. Mike Danks, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So here we are mid-September. It seems like as far as the number of calls you've had to respond to, it's been a pretty busy summer. It really has and I think it's been busy for all the search and rescue teams in the province and I know personally for, for North Shore Rescue, we're at 174 calls, which is well beyond our record of 151 last year. And I think we've got a long way to go still. We talked about this several months ago about the fact that during the pandemic, people were staying closer to home, but in doing that, going more into the outdoors and trying to get exercise and fresh air that way. Is that still what's happening? Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen a tremendous amount of people out on the trails and because we have so many people on kind of the front country trails, we have people that are pushing further back into more remote areas on trails that are less traveled and are, they're a bit more complex as well. So really we're getting beginner hikers that are pushing further out into more remote areas and kind of getting in over their head quite quickly. Um, we're seeing a lot of ankle injuries as well. So people that are just getting on trails with uh, improper footwear And then people, as of late, are getting caught by darkness just because of the sunset uh, coming a bit earlier these days. And what about the, it sounds like the equipment people are are wearing in in a lot of cases, it isn't the proper equipment. Are you finding as well that people aren't going out with the proper communication devices and the other kind of the items that are on the checklist? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're seeing that a lot. Like typically when we get a call from someone for help, their cell phone battery is that two or three percent and because you know cell coverage on the North Shore isn't the best in some areas um, there when we do a ping or a locate on their phone basically the range we're getting is is quite broad so again we really encourage people to have a satellite device if you're going to be doing frequent hikes and if especially if you're going into more remote areas and always bring a backup battery with you and I think that, you know, the number one rule is make sure you tell somebody where you're going and what time you're expected back. Are you finding that, that people aren't doing that? And I know, sadly, we've had a, a couple of cases of people who have gone hiking, have either gotten lost or, again, didn't realize the time they had or what time it would take for the hike. And there have been fatalities this year in some parts of B.C. Are you finding that, that people aren't doing those things as far as telling people and, and perhaps, again, overestimating how much they can do? 
Yeah, I think people are definitely kind of biting off more than they can chew, if you will, just um, with their physical fitness. And then also, you know, they're getting caught off guard by the conditions and people need to keep in mind that the, the weather can change very rapidly um, in the mountains. So that's something they need to account for. And, you know, especially here on the North Shore, you should always have a Gore-Tex layer with you and an extra puffy if you can. And, you know, those are just the basic things. So light and fast usually isn't uh, the best recipe on the North Shore Mountains here. Uh, are you seeing a change then as far as um, what you do to rescue people? I understand in the past it's been kind of an all-hands-on-deck whenever there's a call and everybody goes. But does that change then when there are so many calls? I mean, team members must be getting burnt out as well. Does that change how you kind of decide who goes where and how you deal with a rescue situation? Yeah, absolutely. We've been very strategic with our responses. And, you know, I think that's really the important piece here is we've had such great support from our community. We've been able to to acquire better tools to do our job more efficiently. Um, and that's, you know, we have a night vision program now that's allowing us uh, to access um, terrain that was otherwise not accessible at night um, by helicopter. We've got a, a hoist machine that's available, so that allows us to do um, extractions a lot quicker. And yeah, we we certainly front-end load serious calls um, all the time, but for more routine calls, we're going to be way more strategic with our, our manpower and resources and just send in uh, the minimum amount of people. And of course, we'll always have a backup team in place, but we need to be ready for the next call because we have, you know, we've had circumstances where we've had a call on Grouse, Seymour, and Cyprus all at the same time. Right, and in that scenario, then, then I, I mean, is it a, the you have to work out having three teams or figuring out more people are needed yeah. here? We'll send this this team here. That that's got to be a, a bit of a logistic nightmare. Yeah, no, it really is. But again, you know, we've really built up a lot of capacity on our team, and and I think people need to recognize too that you know, especially here on the North Shore. We're super lucky with the emergency services that we have with the fire departments, with the ambulance service. We're doing um, combined responses to uh, these critical calls that we're getting, and and patients are really getting optimal patient care because it's a a multi-layered response um, to those incidents. And I think, you know, it's this is kind of not the best thing to say, but it's important for people to recognize that we don't just respond to, to missing hikers. We also... Um, go to potential suicides and calls like that. And just with the the current kind of pandemic that we've been in, we've been seeing a lot of those um, suicides. And that's been a really challenging thing for us to respond to because you're, you know, we want to provide closure to the families, but at the same time, our members are being exposed to, you know, some pretty, pretty gruesome scenes at times. That's a really important point, I think, because the name North Shore Rescue, we think of the teams being on the mountains and going under the trails and and the backcountry to rescue people who have either gotten lost or, again, kind of didn't realize the conditions. But that's a really important point that that your teams as well get exposed to that and are dealing with extremely sensitive and in, in a lot of cases, really sad scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's really highlighted. You know, the need for us to, to have training in critical incident uh, scene management and, and just being there to, to support each other through peer support. And, 
building resiliency in our team. So that's been something that we've been working on hard in the background. Um, as you know, all teams train throughout the year and that's a big part of what we do. And the calls are really kind of the icing on the cake. Um, just before I let you go, the weather today is rainy and cold and more typically Vancouver, Metro Vancouver weather. Does this mean, do you get a bit of a lull in this time with not as many people going out or, or is it kind of the same? People are still going out and now it's gearing up for more winter type excursions. Well, this typically will be a slower weekend for us, I'm hoping. Um, But, you know, we do think it's very important to get the message out that we want people to avoid swift moving water for obvious reasons Um, and just be really strategic about where you're going. I mean, this isn't a time to um, be going to more remote areas. It's, It's time to stay close and, in fact, maybe even stay home with the family and spend some time indoors. All right. Good advice. Mike Danks, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, appreciate your time. You take care. We do like to lighten things up a little bit, especially on a Friday afternoon, a rather gloomy Friday afternoon, if you are in the Metro Vancouver area where the rain is still falling. So we are going to now talk to a community shuttle driver. Mike Nanke has been doing this since 2009, hired during the recruitment for the Olympics. And well, We want to hear his story. He joins us now, a Coast Mountain bus driver. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Can you take us back a little ways to 2009? You were hired during, again, that recruitment for the Olympics. How did that all happen? It happened, um, I had just recently closed down a business. I owned and operated a small business for 17 years, and I needed to find uh, another uh, source of income. And um, I had heard about Coast Mountain bus and heard that they were hiring and I thought well let's give it a shot I didn't think anything of my disability because in my mind it was just driving so uh, I along with about 10,000 other people approximately went down to the um, trade center in Vancouver and um, about 500 people ended up getting hired and I was one of them and um, I went through their process and when it came time to actually drive a bus they wanted to see how, how trainable I was they showed me how the uh, turn signals operated, and it was uh, floor-mounted signals on the left side that you operate with your left foot. Up until then, I had not disclosed that I had an amputation, that I was an above-knee amputee. I'd always been wearing pants, and, and it never came up. So then I asked the instructor, I said, is this going to be a problem? And he just said, well, let's see what happens. And we went out, we drove, and I was able to operate the signals by you know, lifting my leg on and off the buttons on the floor. And uh, it was all fine. And he said, you know what, we'll be in touch and we'll see how it goes. And uh, then I got a phone call from Health and Safety. And they said that they weren't comfortable with my operation of that turn signal. And that would exclude me from being able to operate that conventional bus. They then proposed that I go into community shuttle. I asked what it was. They told me. And I said, sure. And now I've been there for uh, almost 12 years. The next in, uh, November, I believe. Hmm. When they told you, though, that you couldn't, uh, that they weren't comfortable with you operating the bigger, the 40-foot bus, even after you'd shown them you could do it, how did you react to that? That was, I, I, I did understand. I mean, I understand that, you know, driving the bus, there's a lot of attention that's got to be paid to a lot of things around you um, in the bus and outside of the bus. And, and from what they said, it, it was pretty clear that, it could very well become a distraction. Just one more thing that I shouldn't be distracted with if I were to operate that kind of vehicle. 
So, I mean, going into the shuttle, I mean, it was, um, it was, it's a little bit less money um, per hour, but that wasn't too much of a concern. And um, like I said, once I got into it, I quickly forgot about, um, you know, wanting to drive a, a large bus. And um, I've been happy with it ever since. And it really never was an issue for me. And so I would imagine then the shuttle, the community shuttles, they drive more like a, a, a regular or traditional van type vehicle? They do. It's more like a, like a Class C motorhome type thing. It's about 24 feet and it has obviously the, the same kind of uh, turn signals that uh, any car would have. Um, so it's very easy for me to operate. There's no uh, issue. Um, and the uh, disability doesn't come into play whatsoever. Hmm. What do you like most about the job? I like the freedom of, you know, being able to do um, the job um, unsupervised for the most part. You're, you're, you operate in the absence of direct supervision and um, you're left to your own uh, devices and your own discretion. And so there's, you know, that's something that I like in, in, in employment. That's something I had with my own business. I was on my own and I, I could make my own decisions and, and work within, you know, the framework I'd set out for myself. And I was able to come into Coast Mountain and work within their framework just without direct supervision. And it's, it's nice just being able to take a bus out and go drive and, and do the work that you know how to do and um, leave it all behind at the end of the day. Yeah, there is something very nice about being able to do that for sure. Did you think before this, I I mean, did you think about being a bus driver or were you concerned at all that your amputation, that your disability would be limiting? Honestly, I didn't even really think about it because I was only looking at it from the point of view of driving. I didn't know anything else about it, what was required. Um, um, but, you know, I soon found out that um, there wasn't anything that could limit me in this job. I think if there was, I wouldn't have gotten the job in the first place. Um, but no, there was no concern about um, something that could uh, be a limitation because of my amputation. Right. I would imagine, though, have you ever, have there been other jobs or other opportunities that you've looked at or, and for whatever reason then also or not been able to fulfill those? No, like I, the, the, I had a small company, like I said, for 17 years, and that just, um, it didn't work out. And so I had to, it's forced to kind of close it up, obviously. And um, the, you know, in terms of career choices, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't thinking about going back to school at the age of 40. Um, I wanted to get into something right away. Um, and this, this basically fell into my lap um, is the first thing that I went out for. And um, once I once I got into it, started seeing more about it and the, the benefits and, you know, the, the type of work that it is, like I said, you're unsupervised, basically. Um, it just became a, a natural fit for me. So what message would you like to give or or to to make sure others know that might be in a similar situation as you? I would say, you know, uh, go for it, you know, ask questions, uh, find out, um, you know, and it's if, if one you know, if one thing doesn't work out, there's, there's other things possible. I mean, there are, there is a website that um, I've been uh, looking at recently from the president's group. It's called the AccessibleEmployers.ca website. It's for employers to help create accessibility with their own uh, companies. Um, TransLink also has very important information for disabled people uh, at TransLink.ca under Transit Accessibility. Um, where people can find all kinds of information about, uh, you know, um, 
using the system as a disabled person. Oh. I think it's important that people know that, that information is out there. Right, because I would imagine, yeah, exactly that, that there, there is information and there are very important information, I would think, for people that are curious or that need to know whether or not something is accessible. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, and, Mike, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you, sorry, that cut you off. No, I was just going to ask if there was anything else you wanted to tell us. Uh, no, that's all. I, you know, it's a, it's um, working for Translink has been uh, a great for Coast Mountain. It's been a great experience. It's a great company, and um, if somebody's out there and they're interested in it, but they think that maybe because of a disability they have, they might be they might be limited. I would say just call, call and ask some questions. And I mean, they're they're very helpful and very informative at Coast Mountain and and Translink as well. And like I said, there's information on the website. Um, yeah, there's information out there for you, so just uh, go hunting for it. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this, and have a great weekend. You too. Thanks very much, Jill.